This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today is part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma. We present an evening of conversation with three candidates running for state Senate. Puyallup Mayor Julie Doerr is running in the 25th Legislative District. Island County Commissioner Helen Price Johnson is in the 10th LD. And in the 5th, nurse and labor advocate Ingrid Anderson. All three candidates represent a tremendous opportunity for us to advance real progressive ideals and policy here in the state. And the following hour is an opportunity for you to get to know them and to get excited about their campaigns. This conversation was recorded live on the evening of Wednesday, September 9th. So tonight, we are very excited to be speaking with three candidates for state Senate, Julie Doerr, Helen Price Johnson, and Ingrid Anderson. We have received a number of questions ahead of time. If you have any extra ones, please just put them into the chat bar. And just before we start, I will say these are tremendous candidates that we have tonight, uh, and each represents an opportunity for us to either flip a seat blue or to flip it for a progressive. And I just feel like there's it kind of goes without saying that there is so much that we can accomplish in the legislature if Democrats can expand their margins. We can address our upside down tax system. We can pass real meaningful legislation on health care and the environment. And of course, we have the census. Uh, so keeping the majority is crucial. I know that each and every one of you is ready to hashtag do the, do the work. In fact, I know that most of you are already doing it. So I know that when you meet these candidates, you will be Very excited to help out. So let's meet our first candidate. Julie Dorr was elected mayor of Puyallup earlier this year by the city council. Previously, she was a member of the city council starting in 2013. She is running for state senate in the 25th LD. This is a district that includes Puyallup and the surrounding areas in Pierce County. Mayor Dorr, hello. How are you? Welcome tonight. Hello. Thank you for having me. We are so glad to have you. And I just want to start by talking about the wildfires now that are spreading across the state, uh, including in Pierce County, where you are. Um, I should also mention that you are an ex officio member of Central Pierce Fire and Rescue. What is the current status of the fires in and around your area right now? I do not know if the Tiffany's fire is still burning, but we had that is not a wildfire. That was an electrical fire. Um, we've had several brush fires. There's house fires in Pierce County, but they're being sparked from ashes and things that are blowing in. The Tiffany's fire wasn't like they believe it was an electrical one. Um, so I haven't heard any updates as to any active burning fires at this moment. The fire crews have been working round the clock for a couple of days now, and they are only allowed to work a 72 hour shift by law, but they um, have been working together and providing mutual aid. We've had at our fire here in Puyallup, there was people from South King County coming in, Ording came in. So they're they're making it work. At one point yesterday, there was no fire units available in Pierce County. Every one of them was out. And they had to call, they did call in some extra crews um, to supplement and you give some relief to these firefighters. Yeah, I mean, it's just an extraordinary situation right now. And I'm just curious to get your thoughts. I mean, wildfires here, in the state are just getting worse and worse. They are. And they we didn't used to see them on this side of the mountain. Um, it was an Eastern Washington thing. A few years ago, there was a big wildland fire south of us that Central Pierce was on. And it, those things just don't happen. But we are seeing, you know, I think it relates back to climate change, even things as far as Tiffany's. 
that was electrical. But one of the things I have learned through my time on the fire board is that the drier things are, wood absorbs moisture. These, our structures are, absorb, they will absorb moisture, which helps to prevent some of these fires. But when the buildings are so dried out, when we've had, we have these, you know, hot, dry days and there's no moisture, the buildings are more susceptible to fire. And so that definitely is a result of climate change. They would have been, it, you know, years ago, they would have been in a better shape to withstand some of these sparks and some of the things that are um, causing them now. I'm wondering what you would like in terms of the wildfires in and around Pierce County, what you would like to do at the legislative level to combat this in the future? So there's a lot of things that we can do there. Um, investing in clean energy and energy efficiency can and should be part of the recovery from the economic fallout from this pandemic. But in addition, the legislature needs to dedicate some funds to wildlife prevention. Currently, the state um, has to try to find money every what, every year when this happens. We have to try to, the state is trying to find a way. They're reactive, not proactive. There needs to be some dedicated investments so that these fires don't get as big and out of control. Um, I'm no forestry expert, but I do know that there's more the state could be doing to prevent, promote healthier forests and help keep the parts of the state most at risk from wildfires. Well, I do know that you're showing leadership on this issue as mayor of Puyallup. Um, I, I'm curious generally how you feel your years of municipal leadership will inform your work as a state legislator. I think it's invaluable. I am really grateful that I chose this path. The cities are, they are the backbones of our, of our communities. They are where local level is where decisions make that impact your everyday lives. But it, having that, having that knowledge and understanding the needs of cities and how things work will enable me to be a better advocate at, um, in the state legislature. I have the understanding of grants and how they're, they're applied for, how they're affected, how funding works, how the needs of cities. So then the, the state has direct impact on that. So I think that that knowledge is was a building block and it makes me uniquely qualified to serve in the legislature because I have that, I have seven years experience at the local level. Well, related to that, uh, I'd like to bring in a, a, the pandemic and kind of talk about the economic recovery around that, because uh, bringing your experience uh, as mayor, you have a plan to help small businesses in your district that have been hit by the pandemic. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. So what we've done so far, the first thing I did when I with the pandemic was obviously attend a lot of briefings from every level of government and advocate for PPE and making sure that everybody had what they needed to be safe. And then I went to work with our small businesses. They are you know, still um, having negative impacts from the pandemic. Started with a very simple orange cone program so that people could drive through town. If they saw the orange traffic cone at the business, they knew they were available for takeout or they had some kind of option, but they were still operating the business. I met with the Puyallup Main Street Association and several of the business owners, and I took our economic development director with me. And we, from that meeting, we decided to launch a Choose Puyallup website and social media campaign, which kept people up to date, and they were able to figure out how they could support these businesses. The most recent thing that I did was advocate and pass uh, ordinance that 
we can permit street closures and it allows them to extend, bend, I'm sorry, extend their footprint out into the streets. So we had, they closed the street and we had picnic tables and then you can order from the restaurants, but then you can be socially distanced out in the street and that helped support the restaurants. It, they had, they do have the ability to have pop-up tents like that when we close those streets to help help keep them operational as much as possible. Well, growing all this to scale, you say on your website that part of the solution is investing in infrastructure. What infrastructure specifically? All kinds of things, transit and um, roads and things like that. It's going to be part of the solution because it's going to create jobs. We need to create the jobs. And there's definitely work there to do. Well, I will just ask you this. I know that Pierce County consistently gets less money for infrastructure than King County. And infrastructure dollars may be in short supply because of I-976, among other things, uh, and the pandemic. How are you going to work to secure infrastructure funding for the 25th? Well, unlike my opponent, I'll be focusing on what Pierce County needs. What I have seen is the Republican Party has been obsessing with Seattle. We need to find... um, Pierce County solutions to Pierce County problems. We need more Pierce County votes and pushing for those priorities. I think that that is the, the key difference here. And, and that's where that ties back into my time as mayor, understanding the needs of this district, under like I said, transportation and roads um, and investments in clean energy. I mean, there's there all of those are infrastructure needs that we need to be advocating for. And had I just went straight to Olympia, I may not have that understanding of the detailed understanding of those issues that I have now, which will allow me to be a better advocate and advocate for Pierce County. I also want to talk about healthcare and bring that into discussion uh, vis-a-vis the pandemic. And I'm curious how you would like to increase access to affordable coverage for all Washingtonians. And specifically, how does your approach differ to that of your opponent? So thousands of Washington residents are struggling with the cost of health care. And especially now during this COVID pandemic, people have lost their jobs, they're losing health care. And it's not right. Health care is a human right. Everyone deserves access to high quality care. And I do support expanding health care access to all people of Washington and ensuring that our hospitals and health care workers have the resources that they need to be able to meet the patient care demands. I'll be interested to see the rollout of the cascade care Washington, you know, that's Washington's new public option. There's been some complications with the implementation, but I do think it's critical that we find more ways the state can help folks access the care they need. And my opponent has not offered any meaningful solutions to our healthcare crisis, and in fact voted against enshrining protections from discrimination based on pre-existing conditions, lifetime limits on insurance coverage, and other aspects of the Affordable Care Act into state law. I clearly have a different view of that and would be advocating in a different manner. Related to all this is the opioid crisis. And I know that during your time on the city council, you served on the opioid task force. What are some ways that you have worked to combat the opioid crisis? And and how would you bring that experience to the legislature? That is a huge issue. um, And it's a really sad issue. I've worked on the prevention and education portion of that. The opioid crisis has unfolded. And the thing that people, a lot of people want to have some judgment on that crisis. It affects every demographic. And from the 
very rich to the very poor. Um, some of it, some of that results in homelessness, but not all of it. So you know, people that still have their family structures in place. So I think one of the things we have to do is just take the stigma out of the out of the crisis because it doesn't do any good. It does not help solve it. We need, if we want to address the opioid crisis, and in my opinion, is one of the the, the aspects of homelessness, one of the causes. We have to we have to be more accepting and we have to find treatment options and fund those options. It's not a crisis and it, it's an ugly disease and it is, it just tears people down and it's not something that people can, a lot of people will say, just get a job. When you, when people are hooked on opioids, when they're addicted to opioids, they are not capable. They're not capable of getting a job. We have to work and support them through a recovery process to get them back on the road to having a more productive life for themselves. Um, and I think that those, those are some really big lessons when you get into that work, understanding the impacts everywhere and the judgment, the judgment is doing no good. It's not helping anybody. We need to come together as a society and address that problem. I think another area that is stigmatized as well that you're an advocate for is is mental health. Um, can you talk a little bit about the scope of that problem and and what you feel we can be doing as a state? So the state stopped funding mental health in the Great Recession, uh, and we're seeing the impacts of that. And again, so what I have always said, you know, we see homelessness. That's a visible problem, but to me, that is. That's the problem, but it's not the, the solution is dealing with the, the causes. And the mental, mental health is a significant cause of homelessness. And I've been out, I've spent a lot of time working on this. Uh, I've been out with our community outreach officer. I've been out with the PATH team. I went out with the rescue mission. I've been to the New Hope Resource Center. I've been to patient, not patient, constituent advocacy, the, listening to their concerns, but the solution, whether, no matter what your opinion on it is, that's a symptom. The solution is still the same. And until we, until we address mental health issues, we will not solve homelessness. I do not believe that. So with this pandemic, we're seeing, I am really concerned about mental health issues because we're seeing it not only in our in that population, but across the board, people are really struggling right now. And without adequate adequate resources, you know, that's gonna be part of us recovering from this pandemic. There's been tremendous pressure on people. There's been social isolation. You know, those things take, or they need mental health resources as well. Absolutely right. And, you know, I know you have a lot going on right now as as mayor of Puyallup with the fires in your region. So we will let you go shortly. But, you know, before we do, I will just mention that on your website, you've been endorsed by dozens of individuals, leaders, organizations, some of them very, very prominent. I wonder if you could talk about one or two that are especially meaningful to you. Well, I will definitely say the firefighters. The firefighters has been very meaningful to me, um, and I really respect their work and what they do. And we're seeing, unfortunately, that work highlighted today, and that they 
put their faith and trust in me is a huge source of pride and accomplishment for me. I mean, because I, I value that relationship very much. Oh, there's organizations like Planned Parenthood and NARAL. Those are great organizations. And I know that right now we have the R90 going before the voters. And I will tell you as a victim of sexual assault, I am a full on advocate for that program, for, for the um, comprehensive sexual education. You, It's hard to not wonder, had this been introduced when I was in school, would I have been a better advocate for myself? Would I? And it's not a single issue for me. I mean, it's not a single incident. And giving the education and having people have that voice and be able to stand up for themselves and know, you know, I just, I'm a very strong advocate for that. And that's when I first came on to council, it, um, it was coming off of an issue advocating um, for people that have been sexually abused. Uh, so Planned Parenthood is near and dear to my heart. I think that that's a, a, I'm fully supportive of that issue. And I think that I'm very honored to have um, Attorney General Ferguson. That I have a lot of respect for him. I think he does an amazing job and that he was willing to put his endorsement behind my campaign is significant to me and it means a lot. Yeah, it's quite a feather in your cap. Um, it, yeah, and I would just encourage people to go to your website and check out your list of endorsements because it is profound. Uh, what is your URL for your campaign website? juliedoor.org, O-R-G. Mayor Dorr, again, thank you. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. I know that you're under a, a lot of stress right now, so we really appreciate you being here tonight. Thank you so much. I'm grateful for you, and I, I am grateful for the indivisible support. Some of the people on this call have written postcards and done other things and made phone calls for me. And we can do this. We can take this seat, but we're gonna. It's gonna take all hands on deck. So thank you. Helen Price Johnson is a three-term Island County Commissioner from District Number 1. She served two terms on the South Whidbey School District Board, and she is former president of the Washington State Association of Counties. She is running for state senate in the 10th Legislative District, which includes North Snohomish County and all of Island County, as well as the southwest corner of Skagit County. Commissioner Johnson, hello. Welcome. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. What a pleasure to be with you tonight. Well, it's a pleasure for us to have you with us. And, you know, I, I think I would like to start here by talking about the stakes of your race. A number of pundits have said that they see the 10th LD as being a, a key district in this year's legislative races, a bellwether uh, district. How do you see the stakes in your particular race? Well, it, this is a very swing district. It's been represented mostly by Republicans for a while, but... Uh, Dave Paul was able to flip one of the legislative seats two years ago, and the demographics of the, of the district have been changing and shifting, and so we have a great opportunity now to bring back uh, a Democratic senator if I get to be elected. And we hope that you do. Uh, I want to ask about something that is in the news, because the 10th has a large population of veterans. I want to give you the opportunity to speak to something. As most people have heard, according to a recent piece in The Atlantic, Donald Trump was heard on numerous occasions denigrating our war dead. I wonder, what was your reaction when you heard that? 
Well, I, we've heard similar remarks from this president for a while. I find them all appalling. Um, you, you're right about the 10th district. We have, uh, I think, the highest percentage of veterans in in, in, in Island County. I know uh, of all the all 39 counties, and it, though there's some that are also very high, we we have a lot of families who have, for generations, dedicated their lives to this country, and many of many family members who've given their lives for this country, and that deserves a much more respect from all of us, but certainly from the commander in chief. Well, and as Island County Commissioner, what are some of the things that you've done to serve our vets in the 10th LD? Well, it's uh, as as uh, you mentioned, I was elected in 2008, and it was the depths of the recession. We uh, worked very hard to address the needs of our indigent veterans, and worked with uh, Angie Hamola, who's running for this the state house. She and I served together during that time and really revamped the veteran services program so that we could better serve the needs of our veterans in need. We've worked very hard to expand that program. Um, making sure that they have access to outreach services of mental health, um, getting them connected with housing and medical. Uh, we've worked, we've tried very hard to get a veterans resource officer in our county, though we haven't yet been successful. But that's a program that I think needs to be expanded across our state. You mentioned that you were county commissioner during the Great Recession in 08. And I want to talk with you next about the pandemic and specifically the economic recovery, because I'm wondering, uh, given the the pressure that uh, was created during that time and some of the things that you addressed as county commissioner, what did you learn during that time that you feel might apply now to the current challenges of uh, resuscitating our economy here in the state? Well, what, what I really learned is that to be able to preserve services, uh, you really have to use more of a scalpel than an axe when you're looking at trying to balance a budget. But in this recession, this economic downturn is, is a little bit different. The cause is certainly different. And we need to make sure that we're focused uh, keenly on our families and our communities. We need to make sure that the what budget cuts do get made aren't actually making the problem worse. And I think that by making targeted investments in things like infrastructure, we can keep people in jobs and uh, housed because right now there, there are a lot of people with a lot of housing insecurity. And if we can continue to make investments in our small businesses and our families, um, we can help get through this difficult time until we can get through the pandemic and, and get back on our feet. What we don't want to do is make cuts that are going to have longer term uh, impacts. Well, so you mentioned infrastructure investment. I'm wondering what you would like to invest in specifically and then how you see those projects boosting the local economy. Well, the, the need for infrastructure investment really isn't something new. It's something that came a long time ago. But right now, what we know is that the benefit would actually have short-term and long-term benefits. Um, specifically, we know there's need for filling in broadband gaps. We have students trying to work from home. We have families that are trying to uh, you know, telecommute. Um, it, our entire system is dependent on broadband right now, and yet there are places across the 10th district that are barely on dial-up. Uh, we have to fill that gap. Uh, thankfully, the state has started to take some steps in that direction, and I think we have a great opportunity. But I also think that there are other things we can do, uh, solar installations maybe, uh, transportation investments, that green infrastructure, uh, like building hybrid ferries that would have short-term payback for jobs and also really make us more 
lower our carbon footprint for the long term. Yeah, and in fact, on your website, you talk about incentives to increase renewable energy sources. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think a really easy one would be solar installations on public buildings. If we could make uh, investments that would actually lower the taxpayer dollars, uh, put people to work making the installations for solar. Uh, I mean, that, there, are, there are a number of other ones too, but um, I think that would have a, be, be a really quick way to keep people working and get a real good payback. Generally speaking, I'm curious to know how your approach on to the climate crisis differs from that of your opponent. Well, I'm very proud to be endorsed by the Washington Conservation Voters um, and by Hillary Franz. Uh, my opponent, though, even in just a short time being in the Senate, has a zero rating from the Washington Conservation Voters. He voted against the state emission standards. He voted against a reusable bags act. He voted against uh, aerial he voted against limiting the aerial application of poisons in the forest. And, um, and, and so I, I, uh, I have a very different approach. I think climate change is something that is uh, undeniable and, and uh, the most urgent need we have in our communities. And I do think that it needs to be part of how we do everything, not something that the legislature adds on, but it should be in, implemented into every road project, every, should, should be going through a climate lens of what, what's this going to look like 10, 15 years from now, you know, if sea levels rise or how can we improve the management of stormwater with, uh, you know, more, more heavy storms in the wintertime or drought in the summertime, how, you know, start implementing that into every planning document. Right. And, and related to that is housing and growth. I know that you see affordable housing as a basic human need. It is certainly one of the most challenging issues that we face here in the state. I'm wondering how you see the path to growing housing without impacting the environment. How do you see that trade off? Well, the Growth Management Act was a great visionary document that kind of laid out the path. It didn't get funded or implemented uh, with the full force of what it needed. I mean, local governments don't have the tools to implement all of the needs of the Growth Management Act. We really need municipalities, particularly where it's already urbanized areas, to be able to accept that growth. Once uh, I mean, we, an investment, again, an infrastructure investment of uh, sewer and water lines would, uh, or purchasing public, the public lands, we're lowering the cost of the land. Is, are those are the major barriers that I have found to expanding affordable housing as a county commissioner. And I think there's some real innovative ideas out there, but it takes unique partnerships and it does take public investment. That's how we got all the affordable rents. Uh, for 30 years, we had subsidized housing units in, in Island County, for instance, uh, that came off the market just as the recession was hitting. Because they'd been they'd been getting tax credits for thirty years, they went onto the general marketplace and lost that subsidy, and they've never been replaced. So we really need federal and state investment to make that work. I'm also just continuing down this path, uh, talking about the climate. I'm interested to see how you feel sustainable farming fitting into all of this, because a large part of the tenth is agricultural. And I know that you recently went to uh, a farm tour in Whidbey to hear about sustainable practices to preserve farmland. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that might inform your legislative work on the climate? Well, farmers really are on the front line of climate impacts. Droughts and, and heavy weather affect them immediately. Um, what my, my philosophy would be to make sure that the thing that we want to have happen be the easier path. 
So let's incentivize those things that we want, sustainable farming practices, organic farming. Instead of making it easier to put poisons in the land and scrape all the topsoil off, let's put the incentives on the other side so that we can actually make sure that we have farmland for our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I do also think housing is a piece of, of this. A lot of our farmers are aging and we need you know, some creative solutions in rural areas so this is one of those places where you need a little bit of housing outside of the urbanized areas to meet this need because younger families might want to take over a farm, but they can't possibly afford the whole property. Um, uh, one of the things that we've done uh, that I've made a high priority as a county commissioner is doing uh, using our local conservation futures levy to buy up agricultural development rights to preserve farmland so that the there isn't it takes some of the it takes that the development pressure away uh, from having to sell that land and subdivide it but preserves a building envelope so that the family or and maybe two families could live there and work the land make what you want to happen easier I, I like that I, I think that's a, a really great mm -hmm. philosophy uh, I want to shift gears a little bit here and talk about something that I know is uh, important to your platform you've talked about the need for increased investment in mental health and addiction services how would you like to see dollars better spent to address those needs this this has been a high priority for me um, I mean, one of the places where I've really focused my attention is is trying to keep people with mental illness out of the jail system. Uh, there, it, it's it's difficult in many rural areas. There really are not other resources available. I'm uh, grateful that there have recently been more investments, but it's we're it's just a tip of the iceberg of what was needed. Uh, we're building a, a crisis center in Oak Harbor right now. That's state funded, regional facility. It's open to San Juan's Gadget, the whole region, so that there's an alternative to jails for people who are in mental Crisis, mental health crisis or needing to detox. And then we can get the appropriate services to these people before they become criminalized and get into the spiral um, of the system. But that takes a lot, it takes upfront investment. The other thing that I think we can do is uh, make another program, an innovative program that we've championed here in Island County that I think would be could be a model statewide is a partnership between our mental health uh, workers and our law enforcement. So they have a ride-along program that's addressing opioid crisis, taking and we have a public health nurse that's on call so that we can go out to where the people are that are struggling with, with addiction and build a relationship and try to urge them to go to treatment before they become, uh, you know, get caught breaking into somebody's house or something. And we've had a lot of success. Uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's a slow process, um, but it really does help address that need. We, we need to make sure some of the cuts that were made during the recession at the state level were to mental health services. And we just can't let that happen, particularly not now. The pandemic has put a lot of people on edge. Anxiety and depression are at an all-time high. Circling back to where we began our discussion about, you know, where the 10th sits, uh, its role, as many perceive it, in this year's race, it, it occurs to me that a lot of your approaches to these issues, uh, you, you seem like somebody who can work across the aisle. Uh, I know that during your time on the county council and also on the Washington State Association of Counties, you are known to have worked in a very bi bipartisan way. Uh, can you talk about the importance of that to you personally, and, and especially in today's political climate? Yes, I um, I feel like we need to always enter a conversation with respect and civility. Um, 
we all come from our own point of view. I, I really uh, have not much patience for personal attacks because I don't think that moves the ball forward. Um, but I do think that by focusing on our communities, we can find common ground and move ahead in those places. We were not going to agree on everything, but there are a lot of places we can move ahead on with, with common uh, focus on common values. Most people want their kids to be safe and to have good schools. Most people want to be able to have access to broadband and to be able to live in a beautiful place and have clean water to drink. I don't know anybody who doesn't like those things. So I think if we can, we might come about it different ways, but I'm also a, a longtime small business owner. And so I'm, you know, I, customer service is kind of the, the way I approach a government. I, I'm, I'm serving, my customers are the citizens of the, of the county and hopefully of the whole 10th LD. And I, I work for them. And so I should be respecting and listening to what their points of view are because I don't know everything and they have really good ideas. Uh, so I need to be open to that. You know, this might go counter to the spirit of what you're saying, but I am curious um, how you see your bipartisan approach contrasting with that of your opponents. Well, my my endorsements uh, ban the st- across the state and uh, and are from elected officials of both parties. I am not seeing that kind of support uh, for, in my opponent's uh, camp. And I, I have over a thousand contributions of individuals to my campaign. The major donors to my opponent's campaign are major are big corporations. So I think that speaks to who we're listening to in the campaign, and that you can usually tell how people will behave in when you look at their actions. So I would ask people to look at how I've funded my campaign, how I've governed as a county commissioner, and the the bipartisan support that I've been able to receive. And I think that speaks, uh, you know, that that creates a contrast. We only have just a couple minutes left, but I want to get your thoughts on something that I know you're a big advocate for, and that's free early childhood education. Can you just talk briefly about the importance of that to you? Well, I, on my time on the school board, it was really clear that early investments uh, really pay big dividends. And and we are seeing the gaps in Washington State's education system. Uh, are, there are still opportunity gaps. And particularly for um, for families of color and, and, um, and lower income folks that have fewer choices. And, and these are things that have been exacerbated in the pandemic. I mean, I've heard of the recovery being shaped like a K where, you know, people of means are doing just fine and people with who, who were struggling are doing worse. Uh, this early childhood investment is going to be a, a really important uh, focus for us, I think, as for so that this pandemic doesn't have longer term consequences for families for the forever. I mean, we, we need to invest in our young ones right now um, and, and try to keep keep them out of crisis going forward because we're they're having a tough time right now. It, it pays back sevenfold. And and when you get to the Senate, uh, we know that you'll have some strong advocates working with you on that issue, uh, Senator Lisa Wellman among them. I'm wondering, uh, speaking of getting you into the Senate, how people can uh, help, people watching, listening, can they, they, they can help your campaign? 
Well, I would love to have your everyone's support in, in my campaign that um, is listening tonight. You can go to my website at HelenPriceJohnson.org. Um, you can make a contribution there. You can endorse. Uh, you can leave a comment. You can contact me. We, we have um, ways that you can email. You can text. You can write postcards. Uh, we have a phone bank every Saturday. You're welcome to join us. We're doing uh, no-contact lit drops. Um, there are, there, there is a way to get involved for every, everybody. And, uh, I even have my brother in, in South Dakota is writing postcards for us. So, oh, and, wow. and, and yeah, so <laughs> you don't even have to live in the tent. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And can we get a, give them Helen sticker? Yes. I, we would be glad to give you a, give them Helen sticker. I want one. That's awesome. Commissioner Helen Price Johnson. Thank you so you much it. for joining us tonight. We really thank appreciate it. Thank you so it. much for having me. What a pleasure. Ingrid Anderson is a former ER nurse who is currently completing her master's to become a psychiatric nurse practitioner. She's also vice chair of the Washington State Nurses Association Political Action Committee Board. She is running for Senate in the 5th LD. This is my home district. It includes Black Diamond, Maple Valley, Issaquah, North Bend, Carnation, Snoqualmie, and parts of Enumclaw and Renton. Hello, Ingrid. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Oh, it's just wonderful. It's great to see you. So uh, we know that Monday was Labor Day, and so I thought we'd start there. Um, let's start by talking about the fact that you've been endorsed by over 30 labor unions. Uh, this is huge. Uh, let's talk about the, the the importance of that endorsement. And in particular, I would love to hear you talk about the importance of unions right now in this economic environment that we're in. I am so glad you brought that up because I've been a union member since I was 18 years old when I started working at my, at my local grocery store. And through that process, through to the hospital today where I'm a member of WSNA, I have learned the importance of what it means to be in a union with strong labor laws and people who are advocating for safe workplaces, uh, living wages, and better health insurance, um, amongst other issues that often come up in workplaces to protect workers and help advance them. This is so important. Across the U.S., there is a war on labor right now. It's a war on working people put forward by major corporations. Um, and I'm so proud to live in a state that has one of the highest union density rates of all the U.S. And just recently, Washington State was also voted one of the most important and, and uh, good states to be a worker in. And I think that's a direct correlation with our high percentage of union membership. So I am extremely proud to be supported by so many different working people across all different spectrums, from nurses to teachers to laborers. There is such a wide variety of people who believe in this campaign because they're ready to have an advocate of working people and somebody who understands what our working families are going through in the fifth LD. Well, as a fellow union member, yes to everything that you just said about unions. And, you know, as a labor leader, you fought on behalf of your fellow nurses in Olympia on some legislation. I would love for you to just tell us about that experience briefly. Yeah, so this is such a great story, I think. It's a story of triumph and what it means to be organized. So about three years into my nursing career, 
I was starting to see people burn out in the ER that I was working in and starting to see areas that we could do better. One of the issues that I saw time and time again is that we never got rest breaks and we were working 12 and 16 hour shifts. When I tried to ask my employer for rest breaks, I was told that when I went to go sit down and discharge a patient, that that was a restful period. (laughs) And that if I took a drink of water, that that counted. And I knew that the data showed that if I was fatigued and tired or hungry, I'm less likely to catch a medical error before it reaches the patient. Nurses and healthcare professionals like respiratory therapists and other groups like nurses catch over 80% of medical errors before there's any harm done to the patient. But that number goes down significantly if we are fatigued and tired. So I ended up taking my my, uh, employer to arbitration because I knew I had to advocate not just for the workers of my unit, but for my patients and my community because I knew their health outcomes would improve if we could get rest breaks. So I I took my employer to arbitration and we won after several years. And I then brought that experience to Olympia because I heard time and time again from other nurses that they were being threatened to lose their jobs if they took a break. So I started giving testimony in Olympia and trying to bring that perspective and, and to show our legislative representatives the amazing gains we made in our patient satisfaction was through the roof setting national standards. It was unheard of that we were having a 98% uh, uh, success rate in how many people would recommend us and enjoyed their, their treatment. Our time to getting a catheter, if you were having a heart attack, went down by half almost. I mean, just significant outcomes that really benefited the community and the workforce. Um, Unfortunately, it was still met with a lot of opposition, especially in the Senate. Uh, As they tried to gut our bill, I found that even the current incumbent voted against an amendment that gutted the bill that wouldn't even give rest breaks to my own very hospital and here in Snoqualmie. That really woke me up to if if my state senator isn't going to work with me and and even more importantly, work against me, who else is he working against and and who is he listening to? And I thought, this is time that we have different leadership and somebody who really comes to the table to listen to how the constituents of this district um, are trying to get by and trying to better our communities. So that's why I'm running today. And something I will say that you also bring is youth, and you also are a working mom. And I'm wondering how those things inform your your policy priorities. Yeah, like so many working families, the pandemic has turned my family's life upside down, right? Sometimes it feels impossible trying to balance work and and trying to do childcare, and now teaching virtual kindergarten for my son. It is wild. And on top of that, running a campaign for state Senate. Um, But that is so important because I'm going to bring those perspectives with me. And these issues are are real lived experience. And I understand the issues because these are the same issues that affect my community. And I know we have to do more. We have to find a way that we can get our kids back to school, but safely and also while protecting the staff who are going to care for them. It's not just about reviving our community. That should not be on the backs of our teachers. It is our job as representatives to find a solution and not put that on our teachers. 
It is our obligation. And things go even beyond the pandemic. I mean, just look at the issue we have over affordable childcare and bringing down healthcare costs. These are the experiences I bring with me as a working mom to Olympia. And it's something that I'm gonna put on the top of my agenda uh, is to help working families in my district when I when I am in the state senate. And you are getting a lot of enthusiasm in the chat bar. I'm sure you're you're noticing. And I would imagine that uh, having a young child informs the way that you think about the future of the environment. So I want to talk about climate. And I kind of buried the lead here because you recently got endorsed by Governor Inslee, and he endorsed you in part because of your commitment to taking on the climate crisis. So we'll talk about that. But I, I just want to talk a little bit about what Governor Inslee's endorsement means to you. I am so excited and we are so energized about this endorsement. This is big news. And we are hearing from constituents all over the district how excited and how this is elevating my campaign. People are fired up right now to see this kind of leadership and see this kind of representation. This is what our district is currently looking for. And I know it was a very big decision. Uh, I believe this is the only time the governor has endorsed a Democrat who is challenging an incumbent Democrat. And I think that really speaks to the value system that I hold and how similar it is to Governor Inslee's. I bring with me the experience of a healthcare provider and the fact that I understand the disparities that are help happening in our healthcare system and the direct correlation that our climate crisis has and how that directly is also a healthcare crisis. And I'm able to link those together for people. Uh, he believes that I will bring this perspective to Olympia to help our COVID-19 response and, and thus our economic recovery and also addressing the shortcomings of our healthcare system to make sure that all Washingtonians have access to affordable quality healthcare. Absolutely. Economic recovery, healthcare. I want to get to those in a second, but I want to stay with climate for just a moment because uh, last session, the governor worked with the legislature to put forth a clean fuel bill. This was aimed at curbing greenhouse gas emissions. This uh, It originated as HB 1110. There was a, a companion Senate bill. It stalled in committee in the Senate. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you and your opponent differ on this bill. Yeah. My opponent does not support this bill, and there's a variety of reasons he lists. Um, but I think most importantly is many of us throughout the district kept calling his office this session, trying to urge him to come and listen to us, come to the table, hear why we need this bill to be passed. And it fell on deaf ears. Uh, I absolutely will not just be a yes vote. I'm going to be a champion to finally get this clean fuels bill passed. It is passed in the House two times a year, just two times in a two years in a row, sorry, just to stall in the Senate. We need a champion, and the current incumbent refuses to do that. I see a direct correlation in my patients at the bedside when I'm caring for them and, the, and how the particulate matter from our use of fossil fuels uh, directly increases the risk of cardiovascular death and respiratory compromise and death. And the beautiful thing is if we get this clean fuel standard passed, we don't have to wait five and 10 years to see reduction in this risk we will see an immediate reduction in this particulate matter. And thus we will see an immediate reduction in the rates of childhood asthma, in the rates of heart attacks, in the rates of all kinds of different respiratory and cardiac death. 
immediate reduction. And this also is an equity issue because often people who are in urban areas uh, it, are people of color and they are mostly affected because of the particulate matter. So I think I can bring that perspective of a nurse and a mom with a son with asthma to bring other people to the table to understand that we don't have another four years to waste. We must make this change now. So let's do talk next about healthcare because I really want your perspective as a, a healthcare professional. We're still in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, you say on your website, quote, we must use this challenge to reevaluate our healthcare system. How do you feel COVID has changed the way that we think about healthcare? And do you see opportunities there? You know, with all crisis also comes opportunity, right? So I think COVID has shown us the best of our healthcare system and the worst. One of the things I am so immensely proud of is to be a frontline worker as a nurse working side by side with other healthcare professionals who continue to show up day in and day out, even though they know that they are putting themselves at grave risk of health compromise and even death. Even when we did not have adequate PPE, which is still somewhat the case today, we still show up. We go to the bedside and we help our patients because we know that we make a significant impact in our community when we do this. So that is some of the beautiful parts of healthcare. Some of the other flaws, though, that COVID has exposed is the inequities that we see. We can see huge increases uh, of mortality and death in people of color. And we can see huge disparities in access to healthcare, which we already knew as healthcare providers was a real big deal, but it has shown a spotlight on it and accentuated it. We've also seen how so many people have their healthcare uh, linked to their employment. And now with so many people without jobs, we also now have so many people who have lost their healthcare in the time where they need it the most. We have seen as healthcare providers and members of the community, because I know you've seen them too, the areas that we could work on. And there are so many opportunities. We can make legislation that changes this. Our legislative branch governs so much of healthcare. It governs providers' licensure. It covers health insurance. It covers access to healthcare. It covers our behavioral health. And I'm going to bring that experience with me um, to help navigate our pandemic response and thus our economic recovery. It is essential. There is not a nurse in the Senate right now. And we desperately need that, that experience and that frontline uh, knowledge of where we can improve our healthcare system. And I am so excited to bring that with me. Well, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, we're, we're very grateful to you for being on the front lines of what has just been an unprecedented and, and quite frankly, uh, terrifying time. So thank you for your service, for your bravery. Um, tied in with all this is the budget. Of course, um, almost every Democrat in the legislature agrees that something needs to be done to address Washington's regressive tax structure. It's the most upside down in the nation. What would you like to do? And I'll just ask you to contrast what you see as differing from your opponent's approach. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is a real sticking point for many people in my district. So we all know that Washington has the most upside down tax code where low income and middle income Washingtonians and small businesses are paying a far greater share in taxes than the wealthiest, the millionaires, the billionaires and the major corporations. 
And this is a huge disparity that must be addressed. We must look at different forms of revenue that help flip this upside down tax code and benefit the true people of our district, right? All of us working families and those on limited incomes and our seniors, they are struggling right now carrying the burden because special interests have carved loopholes into our tax code for decades now. We absolutely have to take action now, not in a couple years from now, but now. Um, and I hear a lot of excuses from the incumbent about why we shouldn't do that. And I've heard this for years. The current uh, thing that the incumbent says is that a capital gains isn't reasonable. He knows I'm a big advocate of capital gains. And he says it wouldn't give us an income for a couple of years. And while that may be true, he was saying that years ago. We've needed it now, and I don't want to be saying the same story in two years from now when we're in an even bigger hole than we are now. So we really need to look at making corporations pay their fair share. It's not okay that an average family in my district is paying about 20 cents on the dollar in taxes, where Bill Gates is paying about one cent. Uh, it's, it's okay to ask them to pay their fair share. And I am absolutely going to advocate for the capital gains tax and closing these corporate loopholes so that we can relieve the burden on regular working people in middle we just have a couple minutes left, uh, and you have touched on this numerous times, but I would like you to address it directly. Because of recent events, I would like to talk about equity, uh, racial equity. It really does touch virtually everything. Uh, so as a legislator, I'm wondering how you see and frame the problem of racial equity and, and how you would see yourself as part of the solution. Yeah, that is so at the front of so many of our minds right now, right? As it should be. And I'm embarrassed to say it hasn't been my whole life, but man, am I, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to pay attention and I'm going to use my privilege as a white woman to advocate and help bring people of color to the table so that they can have a voice. I think racial equity is extremely important and it's clear we have so much work to do. Well, we're seeing protests about racial issues with the police force, and this is a very real, very important issue. It's only the tip of the iceberg. We have systemic issues with racism that go through all different walks of life in our education system, in our healthcare system, in our workforce. It is in every area, and these are all areas that we legislate around. So why aren't we having people in office being this advocate and bringing people of color to the table so that they can inform us on every level of uh, legislation. It should not be an afterthought. This needs to be built into every form of legislation from the beginning. With that in mind, we need to have that equity lens so that we can hopefully give other people the privileges that I've been so lucky to have, that you've been so lucky to have. It is our duty to do that. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and honestly, we, we could have a discussion just about this issue uh, for, for the full 20 minutes that we have. But lastly, I just want to ask you about how you're financing your campaign. Uh, are you accepting any corporate contributions? Nope. So <laughs> how are you I doing it? Because it's, 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 it's hard to finance a, a campaign for sure. It's super hard to finance a campaign, especially now in the time of COVID and especially being a brand new uh, person to the race, right? So the incumbent has outfunded me probably $4 to one. He has raised an extraordinary amount of money. And a large amount of that has come from 
money that I refuse to take, corporate interests, oil money, fossil fuel money, pharmaceutical companies paying him, insurance companies, banks. I refuse to be beholden to these special interest groups. They have enough representation in the state Senate. I want to be an advocate for the people. And so I refuse to take funds like that. And I don't care if that means that he's outspent because this is a campaign of the people and by the people. And as we've seen in the primary, that message is resonating with the district. People are excited to have somebody who's in their camp, who understands and chooses to support them. So I am really relying on grassroots donors, whether you can give $1, I do need your help. I do need your help so that I can get my message out to voters so they know who I am and that I can also uh, put forth literature when I am being thrown under the bus by groups like, uh, like Uber has and Walmart has. I need to be able to combat those lies that will be told about me. And so I do need those donations. I also need volunteers. We made an amazing, we made over 70,000 phone calls before the primary. We are so proud of this. And we had over 140 volunteers, but we need more. We need people to show up and do text banking, postcard writing, phone calls to voters in the district. There is so many different ways that you can help get involved. So go ahead and go to my website, which is www ingridforstatesenate.com and there's a donate button there there's also a get involved link and you can hit that and we will find something that matches what you're able to do we will train you if you haven't done it before and we're going to make it fun it's uh it's a really good group experience and we're really proud of all the volunteers we've had and they all say that it's a great experience and fun well, you referred to this just a moment ago, but uh, we saved the best for last. You won your primary. Uh, and, and tell me by how many votes. What was the final vote count? Oh, gosh. Now I'm on the spot. I worked all day. so <laughs> What roughly is it? Okay, let's say 491. <laughs> and I will say that every vote counts. So in addition to everything that you talked about, we need everybody to to vote. You got to vote the full card this year, gang. Okay, Ingrid Anderson, it has been such a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again to Mayor Julie Doerr, Commissioner Helen Price Johnson, and Ingrid Anderson. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Feisiers. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.